Welcome to Making Our Way, a podcast where we have conversations about some of the toughest and the best moments in life. This is a place where we hear from people who've created a way forward in spite of and sometimes because of the struggles they face. My own journey raising a child with a rare disease, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, is the inspiration for this. But this isn't just about Duchenne or my story. We all have something we're carrying. That's just life. So this is a place for all of us, for conversation, for connection, and to gain strength from each other. We are each other's keepers, and we can also be each other's teachers. We are better together. I'm your host, Marisa Penrod. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm talking with Patrick Gray and Justin Skizik. Patrick and Justin have been friends since birth. They were born just hours apart in the same hospital, and they forged this incredible lifelong friendship based on adventure, laughter, and shared struggle. We're talking about all of it today, but we are focusing on one particularly incredible journey, a pilgrimage of sorts that they undertook several years ago. Together, they climbed, tracked, and persevered through the 500-mile Camino de Santiago Trail across northern Spain. But this wasn't your run-of-the-mill adventure. Patrick pushed and sometimes pulled and carried Justin in his wheelchair. And with the help, the community of others they met on the trail, they completed this incredible feat in 34 days. Theirs is a beautiful story of friendship, of love, and of living every day, one minute at a time. Let's get started. Welcome, Justin and Patrick. I'm so glad to have you here today. I've been really excited about this this interview for quite a long time. Oh, thanks for having us. I really want to begin at the beginning. So you guys were born, I think, 36 hours apart in the same town in Oregon. Tell me a little bit about the early days of your friendship. Man, where do you want to start? I mean, our mothers have known each other since the fourth grade. They went to church camp together. And then our parents collectively went to the same university. So they had known each other for a while. And basically I was born 36 hours ahead of Patrick. So I was kind of high-fiving his mom's belly as I was coming out of the hospital and be like, (laughs) see you on the flip side, man. We went to the same church, same Sunday school classes and all that stuff. And we just always just loved exploring. And we always just kind of got into some shenanigans from time to time. I mean, there's lots of stories we could share, but they would take forever. (laughs) Yeah. We only lived a few miles apart. And so we could bike to each other's houses. And and so we had a lot of, of adventures that just came out of shared experience and just wanting to go and be stupid kids, bike rides, sledding, uh, building forts, kid stuff. Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to take leaps through time. Let's move into what you're doing as young adults and how we get to the point where Justin, you're starting to notice some things physically that you're struggling with. I have a progressive neuromuscular disease that was triggered by a car accident I was in when I was just about 16. So up until that point, it was just kind of Pat and I just being friends and doing fun stuff and all of that. And it was very kind of slow at the beginning. And so it was just a lot of questions, I think, at that point. And Pat and I continued our status quo as as friends and just being together, despite kind of what's the unknown of what's happening with me. And it didn't really start changing until skip ahead. Now we're in college. I went to Southern California for college. Pat stayed in the Northwest. And we just continued being 
involved in each other's lives and call each other fairly regularly. We were, you know, over a thousand miles apart and it just took another level of communication. And he would continue asking me how I was doing with my disease progression. And that never wavered and still hasn't wavered to this day. Good wingman to have. So Justin, will you describe for us what the progression of disease looked like in terms of symptoms and how it was impacting your daily living and what you're experiencing as a young man? Yeah. So that stage in my life, I was going through a lot of testing. So the first symptoms that started happening was uh, that following fall. So this was in the spring. By that fall, I had started, I was running, playing soccer right now, the soccer field. And I noticed my foot wasn't working the way that it should. Mm-hmm. And it didn't hurt. It just was, I couldn't control it. It was just kind of flopping around. And then I, you know, he brought it to my parents' attention and start seeing doctors. And it was just a lot of just questions. Did my leg hit the gear shift when, you know, I was in the rollover to cause just surface neurological damage. It was all these things. And then it was several years of going through that, of just that cycle of test, wait, testing, wait. And meanwhile, I'm progressing, I'm getting worse. So by the time my sophomore year of college, my right foot was now affected and started working its way up to my waist. And I was wearing uh, what are called drop foot braces to keep my feet from flopping around so I could actually be vertical, but it was kind of a slow progression. And so throughout all of that, it was just continually figuring out what was going on with me. And I was finally diagnosed when I was in my early twenties with a progressive neuromuscular disease called multifocal acquired motor axonopathy. It is a very, very, very rare disease. It's very similar to ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. And in a nutshell, what happens is my, something in my brain, my autoimmune system attacks my nervous system and then my nervous system shuts down. So I can feel everything from head to toe. It's just my muscles don't work the way that they should, just like ALS is. Mm -hmm. And so mine is a very, very slow progression. And uh, whereas ALS is in it, typically it's, it's very fast. Mm -hmm. It's a you know, shorter, shorter lifespan. Yeah. So my, my life is a very, very long road and I live life in a wheelchair, a power wheelchair. I have very, very, very little use of my arms and I can't walk anymore. No use of my legs. And so I have to be fed. I have to be cared for. I have to be showered, you know, bathroom clothes on off all that stuff. And so throughout all of that, Pat's been by my side. I was especially drawn to your story when I first met both of you, because as, as you guys know, my son, Joseph has Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which is progressive and degenerative as well. He also, he has a best friend who he's actually is actually his college roommate right now. And I can't imagine our lives without the support and love of a really dear, loyal best friend. So Patrick, I wanted to ask you to share with us as Justin was experiencing these physical symptoms were, which were as yet undiagnosed. There wasn't a name for it, but you saw him struggling. You saw things progressing. How does that impact you as, you know, his from birth, dear friend, lifelong friend? I don't think that either one of us knew how much of a struggle it was going to be, especially in high school, because like Justin said, originally we thought it was, you know, well, this is kind of a bummer, but it's not going to progress. Right. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. it does progress. Now it's both his feet. Okay. This is interesting. Now it's his legs. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Now it's his waist and below. This is interesting. What do we do with this? 
And that, that shared adventure kind of approach to life and this, this struggle that he is having to deal with, you know, that he dealt with so well, it still does. He invited me into that. There was a certain level of trust. And I'm assuming that your son and his best friend experienced the same thing. There's this level of trust that exists in that kind of dynamic that it's really hard to replicate without that. And when you have that level of trust and commitment to someone, like I, I'm going to let you feed me. I'm going to let you, yeah. you know, shower me. These kind of things that become a part of that kind of relationship. How do you not just want to press into that? That's such a, it's such a powerful gift to give someone to say, I trust you this much. Mm -hmm. And while it was a slow trajectory and we had evolution, you know, these different kind of stages, you know, over time, these changes that shifted in what was needed and what needed to be done and, and how hard Justin's disease was attacking his body. There was never a, a shift in that trust that he put in me. And really thinking back to even, I mean, I'm kind of playing back different memories in my head right now when Justin bought up college and meeting my wife. What struck her the most about our relationship was that first day we're hanging out, we're on this college campus in, in Nampa, Idaho, and Justin's got his braces on. And I just reached out and I grabbed his hand and helped him down a curve. That was it. Mm -hmm. Nothing. I mean, just what we do, right? You know, and she had never seen that one in a friendship in general, but like these young adults and there's mm -hmm. just this, this dynamic that's there. This is something that's mm -hmm. just been a foundation in everything we do. He would do the exact same thing for me because I trust him that much, whatever this like looks like. And so we have these two elements, the shared adventure concept that's so strong in everything we do. And then this trust that Justin has given me and really a vulnerability is what it comes down to. Yeah. The threads that start in your relationship become just this rope of, of experiences and memories and traditions and adventures that cannot be severed. It's just so strong. The tie yeah. that binds us, it just gets stronger with every episode of our, our friendship as it unfolds every, every year, every adventure, every experience, it just becomes stronger. Some people think an adventure is maybe trying to run a 5K and pushing their friend in a wheelchair or, you know, let's find a way to get you onto the beach or, you know, whatever it might be. But you guys, you guys define adventure in a way that a lot of people don't. I think we've always had this adventurous spirit, Patrick and I. Patrick, way more than I do. I'd probably say for the record. <laughs> He's used to like climbing mountains and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. On that front, I, I'm typically really happy on a beach somewhere, you know having a margarita or something like that. But spring of 2012, I'm watching PBS and Rick Steves from Rick Steves Europe. And I just watched this episode and it was talking about Northern Spain and Pamplona running of the bulls, Ernest Hemingway and all that. And then this pilgrimage across Northern Spain called the Camino de Santiago. And so I just something about this pilgrimage just really struck a chord with me. And I just knew that I needed to do it. So what the Camino is, it's an ancient pilgrimage that dates back to the ninth century. Uh, it started with the uh, again, rest of the tradition, I guess, the idea that when the bones of St. James, who's a Catholic saint, when they were found, his remains were taken to Santiago. That's where his gravesite is. And then a cathedral was built over that gravesite. And that became a destination for pilgrimage within the Catholic church for many, many years. 
Now, over time, the uh, intent behind this pilgrimage has shifted to a certain degree. There's still very much a religious element. There's also a spiritual element. And I separate those two because I feel like religion can be spiritual, but a lot of really spiritual things aren't necessarily religious. So I think it's important to separate those two motivations. There's also the physical element. Uh, People just want to know if they can do it. And a lot of people find themselves on this trail, not even knowing why they're there. It's just kind of like justice, I believe it calls to them. So what happened is that this, this cathedral in the northwestern corner of Spain in Santiago de Compostela became this destination. Trade routes were used originally, but in present day, the most common path to take is what's called the French way or the Camino Frances. And that trail, you can start anywhere along the trail, but the, the most traditional starting point or the beginning would be in the southwestern corner of France in St. Jean-Pierre-de-Port, which is on the eastern side of the Pyrenees mountain range. And it's 500 miles east to west. You go over three mountain ranges, cross uh, what's called the Meseta in the middle of Spain, which is means plateau, uh, just to basically the wheat fields of Kansas is what it looks like. But 150 miles, you trek east to west, get to Santiago. When Justin asked you to do this, at any point, did you say, huh, what'd we sign up for? When Justin asked me if I wanted to go across 500 miles in northern Spain, Going back to that mentality of shared adventure, anything that I was game for up to that point, he had been game for. If you're someone who's doing this journey, you're considered a pilgrim. It's very much a simple way of life, not a sustainable way of life in our current day and age, but it's just, you travel, you eat what you need to eat, you sleep where you need to sleep, and you figure out how far you need to walk. I mean, it's, that's kind of what you do day in and day out. But because of all the stripping away of all the distractions in our world that we often find ourselves slave to, we are able to experience human connection in a much uh, more intimate and uh, more intense way, I would say, than what we would experience in day-to-day um, interactions on the street as you go into coffee or whatever else. You meet someone at a coffee shop, you know, on a lunch break, you might have a quick little conversation. You meet someone in a coffee shop on the Camino, and you might be talking about some of the heaviest and most powerful experiences in someone's life in a matter of 30 minutes. It's amazing to watch that kind of thing unfold. So that's what we signed up for, if you will, was this this trek, immense physicality, right? There's the the physical strain, there's also mental strain, but then there's a spiritual component going back to that that, uh, reference earlier that, um, that you get to connect with people in ways that not only do you not get to connect the day to day, for me, I didn't realize it was possible to connect with a stranger with such intensity in such a short period of time until I was on the trail. I mean, it was, it was automatic. I just said, yeah, I'll push you. There was no hesitation in my mind because that's just how we're wired. Because I know if the roles were switched, he would have said the same thing. And so how do we make this happen? We say, yes, it's 2012, fast forward 2014, we're on the trail. And yeah, there was some moments where we're like, okay, we might be in over our heads, but there was never this idea of, of we shouldn't be here because it was all about the relationship, not the adventure. That makes sense. The journey as opposed to the destination. Patrick, when you said, I'll push you, it wasn't just pushing. It was pushing, pulling. It was digging out of mud. It's not a path through a wheat field. It is you literally clearing boulders, big rocks out of the way and clearing a path. Were you prepared for that? Did you realize the physical? Because there are times in, in, in your movie where you talk about, you know, I, my legs are throbbing. I can't lift them up. I don't know if I can take another step. You tease Justin at one point and say, all right, buddy, it's time for you to walk now. You got to get up and help. Nobody's going anywhere unless you keep going. I was prepared as I could possibly be. I trained, I trained for a year before we left. 
vigorous training. I've never been in better shape in my life. And I still wasn't ready because there's no way that I could have gotten just to the full 500 miles. So we had Ted come along with us. Ted Hardy was a friend of ours. He's a firefighter and paramedic that uh, joined us for the first 10 days. And so he helped get us over the Pyrenees and, and was a lot of manpower as we're doing this trek. And he came along with the, the mission, he will tell you, that my job is to get you through those first 10 days without injuries. I couldn't have gotten Justin up the Pyrenees without Ted. Uh, I could have gotten through certain sessions of the uh, of, of that middle section, even though it's long and flat in the Maseta. It's hot. It's miles at a time. There's times that we need help with those those areas. We had three mountain ranges. Like looking back, there's no way that I could have done any of this on my own. And when Justin mentioned earlier that he didn't know why he was necessarily on the Camino, like he's called him right, and it took this journey of me finally coming to the realization that even though I prepared and I thought I was the one who was gonna get Justin to Santiago, it was hundreds of people that got Justin to Santiago because stepping in and helping. And, uh, and the, the only way we were gonna get there is if I kind of removed my ego and got myself out of the way. And I had to get out of the way a lot, especially at the end. Will you just share with us day one and how it started and how maybe it was a little tenuous <laughs> during and, and after day one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, when you start a 500 mile journey, you start to think about it as this insanely long thing you're going to be stepping into. And it is, to be honest with you. But day one for us, it was... I mean, it was right out of the gate. We had to go up a mountain. So we had to go over the Pyrenees mountain range to our knowledge had never been done in a wheelchair before. And specifically what we took, what's called the Napoleon route, which is over the top. And it was straight up all day long. And just to give a little bit of perspective here, I took a specialized wheelchair. It's like an off-road type wheelchair has two mountain bike tires on either side and a smaller uh, tire out in the front. I call it a, a three-wheeled baby jogger on steroids. That's basically what it is. And so it's, it's completely manual, meaning I can't push it at all. So I have to have somebody behind me pushing. There's handlebars in the back and brakes and all that. So with me, Pat and, and Ted, we're going up all day and we're hitting crazy stretches that were steep some were sections where steep is like 30% grades. I've never been in a situation, I don't think ever in my life up until that point, where I worked so in harmony with other individuals. So with Patrick and I and Ted, all three of us were one unit. And we had very little help going over the Pyrenees. We had one person help us just briefly, but it was mostly, it was three of us all day. And there were times where I had to be carried. I'd be taken out of my chair and carried up sections. Uh, we were going through rocks and mud and five false summits, which is very <laughs> frustrating. You think you're at the top and you're like, oh, crap, I got, we have more to go. <laughs> I feel like for the record, those false summits weren't false summits. They were false summits because of Ted's ridiculous optimism. <laughs> that would probably, that's, fair, that's fairly accurate. That so. was wildly off. <laughs> Ted told you where you were at the top and you were not here. No, yeah, we weren't. Yeah. It was such a great bonding experience because I had barely known Ted going into this. Mm -hmm. Pat had known Ted and his wife, Amy, for a, a while, but I had met him just briefly before we started this pilgrimage. And so now I am 
on this journey with my best friend and a guy that I kind of barely know a little bit. And, uh, but Ted is wonderful. We couldn't have done it without him. And so it was an incredibly difficult day. It was, was it 17 miles? 17 17 miles miles was the first day. Most of it was uphill. Three quarters of it. Yeah. Yeah. Once you summit, it's you going down. And so, you know, it was a very, very long day. We were the last people to come into town for our first stop. And I tell you, we literally ordered, we've never, I don't think we ever told this story before, but we got to this restaurant. They were about to close. I think they had maybe 30 minutes before they were about to close. And we ordered, I think like five of everything on the menu. Because <laughs> <So true. laughs> we had our film crew with us because we documented it. That's the name of the movie. I'll push you and all that. So we had our film crew with us and everybody. I mean, it was, it was an incredibly, incredibly challenging day. And that was just day one. <laughs> so, but I knew that once we made it over the Pyrenees, I was like, okay, I think, you know, this is not obviously not over yet, but okay. If we can do that, I think we can, you know, we're going to try our best to make it through, through each day. Once you go over the first day and you end in uh, what's called Roncesvalles, uh, it's a town on the other side of the Pyrenees, you leave town and there's a sign that says Santiago, 790 kilometers away or whatever it is. That's sobering. I remember looking at that sign and realizing I'm not going to think about, I'm not going to think about this, what we have left. I'm just going to get through what we have today. And sometimes it's not only just today, but what is in front of us the next hundred meters or whatever. And I think there's a, I think there's a little lesson in there that, you know, when we get overwhelmed with the bigger things in life, sometimes you just have to chunk it and just get it down to the day and be, and try to be as present as you can in the, in the moment and get through literally what is in front of you. And I'm glad we kind of had that mantra because then we just, all we did was we tackled each day. This is the day we got to get through. (laughs) And before you know it, you're there. And that's a great philosophy for life, right? I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. So you guys, I want you to take me back though, because you and Justin, I love how you say this. You're just like, yeah. So the first day we, we climbed the Pyrenees, (laughs) just like you went to the grocery store, right? Like we, we did, we summited the Pyrenees. (laughs) So it was an incredibly difficult day. Take us back to when you got to the summit before, when you knew it was not a false summit anymore, when you literally were at, at the top of where you needed to be and you were going to start to descend. Did you pause? What did it look like? What did you feel like? What was in your head? What was in your heart? You know, I, I mean, it's once you get to the top, it's very obvious you're at the top. <laughs> the view is absolutely spectacular because now you're looking down you cross the french and spanish border and now you're looking down into spain and it's just you see this vast seemingly like an unending you know train in front of you our first priority was to call our wives because all of our families were literally on i think on pins and needles just wait like okay are they going to make it because it unfortunately it does take lives so we called them and let them know we're at the top, we made it. And we took a quick photo of, of us, but we couldn't sit there forever because we still had to make it. We had to keep going. You don't celebrate too much. It's just like, okay, we're at the top. Cool. <laughs> we made it. Okay. All right. Uh, let's take a deep breath. You know, we kind of spent a few minutes there and then we started our descent. 
down because we the day was not over for us and you could start seeing the sun starting to go down uh and those kind of things so it was you know we knew we still had more in front of yeah. us yeah what were you thinking patrick it was so much harder than anything i had anticipated like Justin mentioned such deep sections but right out of the gates as justin you know mentioned earlier that we were a unit you know ted justin and i were just in unison the entire time from a communication standpoint to how our body mechanics were synced up. And so you have all this energy that's just poured into this one thing, right? And then you get to that top, that, that summit, that mile marker 13, whatever it is, as we're looking down to Spain and it is the luscious greenest forest. And there's every shade of green is down in the valley below you. You know, you know that you're going down in that valley is a kind of combination of this, okay, we did it. This hard part, you know, the, the, the first hard part <laughs> um, is over, if you will. But because Justin mentioned earlier that the idea that you don't focus on the, the, the end part of the journey, it's just what's next, what's next. That was one thing that kind of stuck with me is, okay, have that perspective, whatever it is that I'm doing in life. Yeah, celebrate that that we've got something, you know, we've done something hard or, you know, we've brought something to fruition, but what does this make possible? And that's kind of how it felt. Like, oh, okay, here's the next challenge. This downhill, haven't done this yet. All right, I'm thankful we just did what we did because now we get to do this. So I want you guys, especially, we can't talk about your whole journey, all 34 days of it and 500 miles, but we tell us about day 28 when you were choosing a particular route and people told you it probably wasn't a good idea and you did it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so on our pilgrimage, we go over three mountain ranges and this was day 28 was our third mountain range. It's a short, steep ascent, meaning it is like, not kidding you. It is straight up. And we had people tell us, they didn't say don't do it. They just said, you know, it's hard to do on foot, you know, pushing a you know wheelchair with me in my chair, it's about 250 pounds, you know, so imagine pushing 250 pounds up something that's fairly, fairly steep and you're going over, you know, rocks and ravines and, and, you know, it's, it's a hike, it's a trail, like you're going up and we had really kind of considered, should we go around, you know, should we go around it? Should we go, you know, there's kind of two routes you can go. Well, there's three options. One is take the trail. Two is take a road, which is as steep, but it's pavement or third, take a taxi and go around it. And so we had kind of been on the fence, but through our journey, Patrick mentioned, we meet many, many people along the way. So many, we actually lost count, but after I think 150 people helping us just, but day 28, we're at the base of the, of the, the mountain and we end up meeting uh, some friends of ours. We had met a couple of weeks prior, Joe and Richard. They're actually from Boise, Idaho. So Pat and I live in Boise, Idaho area. And they asked us where they could be the most helpful for us. And we said, we need help getting over Osobrero because we were at least going to attempt it because sometimes you never know until you're going to try whether or not you can be successful. And so we knew we need as much help as we could get. We meet at the base of the mountain and unbeknownst to us, we had 12 people waiting for us, people we had never met. Some people we had met before, but you know, it was just this amazing moment where one by one people showed up and waited for us. And they said, we're going to, we're going to do this together to help get Justin Patrick over this mountain range. And we set out to, to go over this thing or go up it. And 
people were not kidding. It was straight up and it was so steep. So it was just people just banding together, pulling together to as a unit and getting me up this mountain. And it was this beautiful moment where you just have these strangers coming together for a common goal. And, you know, they set aside their own priorities to make us their priority. And it wasn't easy for them. I mean, they were, it was blood, sweat, and tears all the way up. I describe it as a beautiful human symphony. That's Mm -hmm. the best way I can describe it. Just everyone working together, having their parts, trying to get us up to top. And we, we made it all the way to the top and collected some people along the way. So it was one of the most amazing days for us on the pilgrimage, for sure. The visual in the movie is, is just, it's heartwarming. It's gut-wrenching. It is, it's incredibly moving. Justin, at any given time, how many people actually had their hands on your wheelchair carrying you? At that point, about six or seven, sometimes eight. So Patrick, you were one of the carriers, you know, helping to, to carry Justin up the mountain. But as Justin said, there were people who were on their own personal journey on their pilgrimage. They had their own personal reasons, but they paused and they jumped in and they, they really got both of you up the mountain. Why do you think people do that? I think people are hungry for purpose, truly. And a purpose that's worthwhile can't exist unless it's outside of who you are, outside of yourself. If it's self-serving purpose, it's not rewarding. You know, I mean, we could talk about the science behind that if we wanted to, but <laughs> you, know, you start looking at, at, at the information that's out there around being vulnerable, you know, moments of compassion and what it just does for the body it's profound. And so it wound up being an opportunity that Justin offered a lot of people to discover how much beauty there is just to pour into somebody else. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I mean, you are an amazing model of, of friendship. There are some moments in the trailer for the movie, but in the movie that are incredibly poignant when Patrick, you brush Justin's teeth for him. And you, you lift him up out of bed into a seated position. You're dressing him, you're buttoning the front of his shirt and uh, Justin leaned forward. He, and he kisses you on the head. And um, there are moments on the trail where Justin, you can see the fatigue in your face. It's in yours too, Patrick, but you know, Justin, you lean onto Patrick's chest and, you know, Patrick, you pull him to you and you, you kiss him on the head and you guys are so demonstrably loving to each other and in just a brotherly, incredibly beautiful way. And we don't see that very often between any, many friends at all, whether it's, you know, women, men, whoever it is, tell me how you're, you know, where your comfort with that comes from. Is it just who you are? Or do you guys just have a greater appreciation for the limited time that we, we all have here and you just, you know, you, you just find ways to express love to each other. You know, we're both, I don't know if you are familiar with the love language, the five love, love languages, but mm-hmm. Justin and I, you know, we're, we're both individuals that, that, that physical touch, that being able to express your appreciation through a hug, you know, or an embrace. I mean, it's, it's important to us. It's just kind of how we are wired. So I think there is some baseline of that. But as fathers and as husbands and as friends, I think we've both recognized this. I want to put words in your mouth, Justin, but I think we've talked about this enough that I can say this to confidence that when 
when you take that time, that moment, that not only are you showing the person that you're embracing, but that kiss in the forehead or cheek, whatever it might be, that, yeah, like, I, I love you. You, know, um, you are also showing everybody else around you that I love this person. I think that's important. I think it's important to not, I mean, not to overly do it, but just for people to witness that, oh, there's there's something here that's that's intimate, something that's raw, something that's unique. Because when we do that, I think there's two things that can happen. One, people start to recognize that, oh, maybe that's not so scary. Yeah. Because I think there's people that hung, hunger for that, but just for whatever reason, they don't. And so you they, they can see that, oh, maybe it's okay. And then like internally, it's almost like there's permission to do yeah. the same thing for somebody else. I mean, we've been huggy since high school, you know, and not a lot of high school kids hug, you know, but yeah, we just beautiful. did. And yep. so it's just been part of who we are, laughter and, and affection. Mm -hmm. For me, I can't literally wrap my arms around somebody. So I used to be able to do that. And I'm a big hugger. If my arms would work, I'd be hugging everybody. When we show affection to one another, it's just really, it's just all comes to just like, man, I care for this guy. Like yeah, I care for him. sure. Like he's my yep. brother, you know, he, he's in the trenches with me. Yeah. Yeah. And to be honest with you, we had no idea that that was a rarity or a, a bigger thing. Um, we've always kind of done that. Pat's taught me many lessons along the way of how to extend that beyond our little circle. So when I show affection to Patrick in, the, in those moments, it's because I'm greatly appreciative of him yeah. and what he's done for me. So that's literally all that it is. <laughs> it's beautiful. Well, no, and I think just people appreciate it. And I think a lot of people crave it. So Justin, in the trailer to the movie, you talk about people doing things for you and you talk about it's hard to let somebody do that for you. That's a form of accepting help because you don't have a choice. Has it gotten easier for you? And did the Camino, did the 500 miles of literally having people carry you, did it make it easier? The biggest key that I've learned is that when you deny someone the opportunity to help you, you actually deny them the joy in life. Sometimes the best gift you can give to yourself is just saying yes and put your pride aside. Is it hard sometimes? I mean, yeah. I mean, I'll never forget the first time Patrick showered me and helped me in the bathroom. I mean, talking about a turning point in a friendship, mm -hmm. like, I mean, it was for me, very humbling, very embarrassing, all the emotions that you can have associated with that. But yet here I have my best friend in front of me saying, give your wife a break and I got you. I'll come take care of you for the weekend. And, you know, and that required him stepping into that situation. And I tell you, man, we've never laughed so hard in my entire life. I mean, I think we just like, you know, chuckled and, and kind of worked through it together and just like walked him through the process. He had a medical background, so it was a little bit easier, I think, for him. He's used to those kind of things. But I've had other friends like step into that role and help me in those situations too. So yeah, it's work, but it's also what a way to open the door for love to thrive. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's beautiful. I couldn't agree with you more, Justin. Uh, and I, I want to flip this just a little bit, Patrick. I want to ask you something because my Joseph left for college last year and it was like a Herculean task to get him ready. You know, he is in a big power wheelchair full time and it was all the modifying the dorm room and learning the bus schedule and figuring out if the classrooms were accessible and so much based on, you know, what he 
needed and what his needs were. And the thing I wanted to send him away to college with was understanding that as much as he needed, his needs were very physical and obvious. But I said to him, I said, Joseph, you have to remember too, that there are people there who need you. And, and you don't even know it yet. They don't even know it yet. And their needs might not be things that you can see, but they need you. They need Joseph, the person, the friend, the, the guy with the great, you know, big heart. So what I want to ask you, Patrick, is we've talked a lot about, you know, you pushing, pulling, getting Justin up that mountain, the things you've done for him helped physically. How, how has Justin carried you in situations? How has he been your person when you've needed something? Oh man, there's, there's a long list. <laughs> I mean, the, the biggest example of that is that that level of vulnerability that occurred on the trail kind of opened my eyes to what, what I could accomplish if I would let other people in. I mean, I just, I've always been someone who just gets stuff done. And with that comes a little bit of control of freakishness, if you will, because if I can wrap my arms around something, I can control it and no one else can screw it up. But often within that kind of dynamic, we screw it up without realizing it because of our obsession with the control. And so with his whole life and that just inviting people in and seeing how things play out, I've witnessed many times where his and other people's vulnerability isn't just an invitation for someone to step into what others would perceive as weakness. It's an invitation to step into something that you might not have ever been exposed to before Mm -hmm. because of that vulnerability. And I have been exposed to all kinds of things. And the Camino is just one example. I would never have been exposed to the Camino and the depth of relational interaction that is possible if it hadn't been for just his vulnerability. It's important that I remember that if I can just let go and let someone step into whatever it is, whether it's a project at work, help me out with the kids, whatever it might be, not only is my vulnerability keeping myself from achieving more things and doing them better, it's also robbing someone else of an experience where they're going to expose to something that might profoundly change their life. Mm-hmm. It's really the epitome of trust and faith in other people. Right. But that trust and faith in other people, it gives them an opportunity to do so much more. Yeah. That's exactly what Justin did for me. He, he gave me the opportunity to discover so much more about who I was meant to be. Yeah. That's pretty special. It seems to me like I would think, okay, if I survived it, that is a one and done. Like that is a once in a lifetime, but that wasn't enough for you guys. And you you go back now, but you do it a different way. Tell, tell us about what you're doing as the follow-on to the initial 500 mile hike. So after we got back, we had a lot of people reach out and say, Hey, I, my, my brother or my son or my sister or my uncle is in a chair. We want to do the Camino. How do we do it? And so Justin would give them advice on the chair side. I'd help them train you know, here and there. And Justin kind of like, wait a minute, we've had like seven or eight people reach out. Maybe people actually want to go. You know, what would happen if we put this together? And so he took the initiative to kind of make some contacts with some individuals over in Europe. And the outcome was basically what we call accessible Caminos, where we bring people together, both those who are in the need of of physical assistance and those who can offer the physical assistance and bring groups together. And we do the last 100 or so kilometers on the Camino de Santiago. So we just, this this year in 2022, we took two groups. First group was 47 people, six people in chairs. 
The second group is 53 people, six people in chairs. We also had a lady who's visually impaired in the first group. So it's, it's all types of what people refer to as disabilities. We are making it as accessible as possible. You're making it, you're making <laughs> yeah. it doable. Making it doable. Yeah, yes. do, doable Caminos, but you know. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so, but what's happened is that people who would never have thought this was even in the realm of possibility are making the way to Santiago and experiencing this because someone is jumping in and saying, hey, I want to help you. But the flip side of that, just like you talked earlier, there are people who have found themselves in the Camino that are helping someone that is a complete stranger to them that never would have gone if there hadn't been the opportunity to press into someone else's journey. And it's beautiful. So yeah, we take people, they were going back in 2024. It's wild. So we've gone back three times now. Patrick, there's something you said, I think it was in a TED talk and you were referencing Justin and you said, he's not defined by his limitations. He's defined by what he's able to accomplish in spite of those limitations. Mm -hmm. And I always say that about Joseph, you know, people say, oh, he's a Duchenne boy. And I'll say, he's not a Duchenne boy. He's just a, he's a boy. He's a young man. Now he happens to have Duchenne, but that's not what he is. And I just think, you know, Justin, I think about you. I think about Joseph. I think about everybody who battles a very challenging physical disease, which does seem to at at the outset and on the surface impose limitations, but my gosh, I mean, who doesn't have limitations? I think, Justin, I don't think you're an inspiration to the disability community. I think you, along with Patrick, you're you're an inspiration just to to humans, to everybody. You oh, know, your wheelchair funny. is just a tool. Yeah. It's just about yeah. life. Yeah. We talk about this all the time. I mean, it's, yes, I'm in a wheelchair. Yes, I have extreme limitations. I 100% agree with you. Everyone has something they're dealing with, a challenge in their life but we can't do it alone. And that's the main point we have to, we have to kind of keep hammering down is that it takes being vulnerable. It takes people walking, you know, sharing your journey with one another. Sometimes it can be a complete stranger. Sometimes it can be close friends and loved ones. Yes. I live life in a chair. I'm dealing with the challenges I have, but it is just, I just have to view life differently Mm -hmm. than everyone else. Um, And I have to think through things differently Yes, I have to rely on more people in my life to literally survive, but it goes beyond that. I don't think of it that way. I don't think of using people as a tool just to live. I don't look at that at all, literally zero. What I do is I I love to have people in my life that make me better, that help me challenge me, help me grow and help me see life differently. Help me maybe help me overcome some challenges. And by God's grace, maybe I get to have that opportunity for them too, and be able to be there and, and help them in their journey too. So it's a two-way street. I'm pretty sure you do, Justin. I have a <laughs> I, feeling. We try. I have a feeling yeah. you can check that one off as I'm thinking about your whole experience, your life from childhood until now. What do you think makes a life of meaning? Life of meaning, I feel like for me, is that everything that I do, even with my work, where the, the tasks that I'm doing might not be the most amazing thing, but that job gives me an opportunity to do certain things for my kids or things for friends or strangers because of financial means or time, whatever it might be. That motivation is, is someone going to know that they are loved and have a better life because of who I choose to be, period. And if we can distill down everything to just that, and it's, 
It's much more complicated than that. The execution can be difficult. All the steps in between can be difficult. Sure. But that why, that focal point makes those difficult steps worthwhile. Yeah. The only thing I would like to add is sometimes you got to laugh along the way. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> laughter is a big key in our friendship. I think it makes those moments that Patrick mentioned even more sweet where when you, when you can kind of lighten up a little bit and just enjoy those moments and let yeah. them play out in front of you. So guys, as we, as we start to wrap up here, what do you hope your legacy is? The long run, the long play for me is to be remembered as just like, man, Justin did his part. And in that people favor, you know, look, look back on that and go, I can learn something from that. Thanks, Justin. How about you, Patrick? I mean, it's all the same thing. You know, I just, I want people to, when I die, I hope it's a party about how I loved others well. And I hope my kids can do a better job than I did. Yeah, that's beautiful. Guys, thank you so much for being here with us. We all, I think all three of us have a great appreciation for, you know, our most precious commodity is time. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's limited, it's not renewable. I'm so grateful that you spent so much of your time here with us today. Thanks Thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Making Our Way. If you enjoyed this, please share it and be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss any episodes. Production support for Making Our Way was generously provided by PTC Therapeutics, Pfizer, and Sarepta Therapeutics. Thank you for making this possible. If you'd like to learn more about the work that Team Joseph is doing to support the Duchenne community and to make the world a better place, please visit us at teamjoseph.org.